Like the 70 uh, total humans that God took down to Egypt and eventually did a mighty work through them and glorified his name, God loves to do a lot with a little, like Gideon's army. He likes to put enemies to flight through unsuspecting uh, peoples who enjoy his power. Little loaves, little fish in a little basket that belong to a little boy that bless the multitudes. God loves to do a lot with a little, like the widow's might. Two little copper coins fallen into a bucket in the temple treasury. God, through His Son, the Lord Jesus said, that's more in His eyes than the maybe millions that fell into the coffers through the pockets of others. Our God loves to do a lot with a little. Today we're going to talk about embracing a biblical theology for kingdom investment. Uh, It's a replete biblical theme. Our elders often remind each other uh, in places like elders meetings and when we're praying for the flock together. That we aim to shepherd the flock, quote, from the covenant. We use that phrase a lot with each other. We even say it from time to time to the whole congregation. And by that we mean that that we believe our covenant here at Grace Church includes the main things that reflect a faithful summation of a biblically shaped Christian life. And that together we just try to help each other be making progress in the things that are described in that covenant. None of us have arrived at those things. But as members, we have publicly professed before the Lord and before each other that we want to be held accountable to be increasing by God's grace in those qualities. And that we would hope through the grace that God gives to us shared in our enduring relationships with each other over time in this covenant family, that we would look more and more and more what, uh, like what our covenant describes. So this is why our members reaffirm our church's covenant every two months at our members meeting. Like Pastor Nathan said, we'll be next Sunday evening, Lord willing. We don't mean to suggest when we say we shepherd from the covenant that we think it's inspired or on par with Scripture, except, of course, for those phrases which are direct quotations of Scripture. But we do understand that it's a faithful distillation of Scripture's description of the Christian life. And every line can be substantiated, as we've talked through here before at Grace Church, by many, many, many passages of the Bible. So we understand that our covenant is a condensed summation of an increasingly mature Christian life. So in our pre-membership classes here at Grace Church, it's called Foundations of Grace. It's a four-week class. And in our in-home sharing care conversations, which is part of the membership process where we sit down with people and talk about how God's at work in their life, we ask them questions about the covenant. For example, are you willing to be actively involved in the weekly congregational worship of this church? And we say, if not, that's between you and the Lord, but this church would not be a good fit for you. Not because we're trying to impose some extra biblical standard, but we believe that's a radically biblical shape of the Christian life, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, Hebrews chapter 10. So when a prospective member stands before us and affirms our covenant, our elders try to explain that what we and they mean is that we all agree 
that it's a loving approach to take that one example weekly congregational worship of this church is something we want to be actively involved in we would take it as a very loving approach if any member of the church holds us accountable to be engaged in that so on the way into membership we ask people if they would be willing to be held accountable to the shape of what our covenant describes as the christian life they aspire to live In another way, the covenant becomes a template for not only pre-membership care, but ongoing membership care. That's what I meant when I mentioned we shepherd from the covenant. So um, it's not uncommon that when a brother or sister is going through a particularly acute distress, that we're reminding each other that we want to aid our brothers and sisters in our distresses. That's a quote from our covenant. Come alongside them. Hold their arms up in the battle. Also, when we experience the attacks of the enemy or the effects of our own sin against one another, if you're a member of this church or have been for any length of time, you will know that others sin against you. Uh, Other brothers and sisters, you also do the same, unfortunately. So we say things like we will seek to secure reconciliation with those in this flock and do so speedily, quickly, without delay, as is the command of our Savior. We won't let roots of bitterness spring up and spoil the whole bunch, Hebrews 13. So I want to say, to put all that another way, when we covenant together as a local church, this one or any other, what we're saying is, By the grace of God, I am resolved not to be offended when another member seeks to help me live like this covenant describes. It helps a shepherd after people join the church, not only before. So on the way into membership, during membership, and actually after membership, the covenant also helps us to shepherd because it says... When we leave this church, we will, if possible, join another church where we will be taught to obey the word of God. So somebody left here and never joined another one, we'd be very concerned about their spiritual well-being. Well, the covenant's also not unique. We hope it's not. And what we mean by that is we hope that any Christian in any place in any time could say, absolutely, that's what I want my life to look like. There's nothing specific about Grace Church in it. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because today we're beginning a two-part series on the theme of kingdom investment. And one of the phrases in our covenant says, we will, quote, contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministries and expenses of this church. Most of you are already doing that very faithfully. We believe that scripture is clear that all Christians should do that continually. In the Grace Church Covenant, which again has been voluntarily embraced by our members as a template for Christian accountability, includes that line, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, we will walk together in Christian love to be actively involved in the weekly congregational worship of this church and to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministries and expenses of this church. Now, it's one thing for us to articulate it that way, and it's another thing altogether for that articulation to accord with Scripture. And with that in mind, I invite you to Luke chapter 7. We'll pick up our reading in verse 36. Today's theme 
is embracing a biblical theology for kingdom investment. Lord willing, next week's theme, which will be part two in the final part of the series, will be giving to get the gospel to the next generation. So today, embracing a biblical theology for kingdom investment, listen to the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 7, picking up in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. Verse 41, A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Chapter 8. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Would you join me in prayer before we consider this passage together? Father, we just collectively confess to you that we all worry about money, whether we've got none or much. It's just a matter of incessant worry. Some of us wonder, we got to make it this month. And others of us are encumbered by all the complexities that come with not having that worry, but a thousand others. So I pray, Lord, that you would fabulously provide for this church. That you would extravagantly provide. For those who feel that it would be a kingdom blessing for you to double their household income, I pray you'll do it. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that you'll make us kingdom-minded. That everything we have, all the way down to our pocketbook, we would gladly surrender to you. And Lord, we thank you that you are 
altogether needless. We praise you that you are self-sufficient. We extol you because you do possess everything and everyone. We thank you that without impediment, you are always accomplishing your good pleasure. We joyfully confess that you do not need us. So we ask that you would align our hearts with your heart. That we would be most devoted to that which you are most devoted. We ask that every aspect of our life would reflect that we are glad to join you in your kingdom purposes until we see your lovely face. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's question is pretty simple to ask, but I encourage you to answer it over time. To do so intentionally and regularly. And the question is, what is your strategy for kingdom investment? Christ's kingdom. What's your plan? No plan is a plan, but no plan is a bad plan. You all have a plan. Your plan may be a bad one because it's not very clear and you've not thought about it. Or or maybe you've wavered from what you already know is a good and biblically ordered plan. But what is your strategy for kingdom investment? You have one. And it's being played out. Three things from this passage, and I confess to you, I'm going all over the place in God's Word today. Um, The first thing I want us to see, verses 36 to 39, is that the Pharisee gave Jesus a tip, but the woman gave Jesus her life. In verse 36, the Pharisee requested for Jesus to dine with him. And so Jesus comes to his house, and we're told he reclines at the table. So let's just not miss the obvious. The man opened his home. I've preached here from this pulpit before that every Christian should put the house key to their front door on the altar of Christ. You can have my house. It's not a place where I retreat for my empire to hide from the world. It's a resource to be used for God and his glory. Okay, so this man opened his home. He also got the groceries out of the refrigerator, and he provided a meal. This is not to be minimized, not to be ignored. There had never been a more significant guest under this man's roof, but the man had zero interest in Jesus or his kingdom. For the Pharisee, Jesus may have been something like uh, the evening entertainment. He was a means to an end. He was using Jesus, not loving Jesus. Maybe Jesus would answer some Q&As or do a miracle or two. All we know is that in verse 36, the, the phraseology is he kept requesting for Jesus to come. So don't get me wrong. There is nothing with getting Jesus into your home. So let me make a positive application. When's the last time you or I opened the door of our house and put other people's feet under our table so that they could listen to Jesus talk to them? That's a good thing. It appears that his front door was so wide open that, quote, sinners could just traipse in uninvited. So that they too could get close to Jesus. That's a good thing. So the problem was not with the man's home. It was with his heart. I'm saying the problem is not with what the man gave to Jesus. But why he gave it. A warm meal at your table is a very good thing to give to other people. Do that. Often. But it was all for naught in this man's life because he was using Jesus Instead of loving him. He was commodifying Jesus instead of treasuring him. The man quickly revealed that he was very ready to judge Jesus by his standard. Rather than receiving Jesus and his judgment according to Jesus' standard. The woman on the other hand came in 
reclined at the table or nearby it. And there's no indication in the passage that she ate the meal. She wasn't there for the food. She showed up because she treasured Jesus more than anything else she owned. Leon Morris said of that phrase in verse 37, a woman who was a sinner, quote, probably means she was a prostitute. Her alabaster vial was undoubtedly expensive. It was perhaps passed down to her as a family heirloom from previous generations, making it not only pricey, but also sentimentally precious. Maybe she acquired it not as an heirloom, but the expensive container was the product of a purchase she made from her successful, scandalous stream of income. All we know is that she gave all of it to Christ. The sacrificial gift to Jesus reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 12 about that poor widow. When Jesus sat down at the treasury opposite where people uh, were giving their gifts and he began observing Mark 12, 41, how people were putting money into the treasury and rich people were putting in, quote, large sums. Mark 12, 42 says a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And so Jesus calls his disciples to him, Mark 12, 43, and said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. How does that math work? Mark 12, 44 Jesus said to his disciples, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty, quote, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. She put her life in the offering plate. The widow in Mark 12 put her whole life into the hands of the Lord. The sinful woman in the Pharisee's house in Luke 7 did the same thing. Her most priceless treasure was given to the one she most treasured. If you and I will humbly put our little basket of loaves and fishes into Jesus' hands, he'll feed the multitudes. But if we keep it for ourselves, mark it down clearly, he will still do his work. He'll simply raise up other people who will get the blessing from giving to his kingdom purposes and causes. If we don't give, we lose, not Jesus. He invites us to give, not because He's needy, but because He wants us to have the joy of joining Him in His gospel work in the world. Paul said something really strange to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than receive. If you don't want a blessing from giving your all to Christ, And using all the resources He's entrusted to you, time, energy, money, possessions, everything. If you don't want a blessing for giving your all to Christ, Paul should have said, forget the words of the Lord Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than receive. Paul said, remember, remember, when you're up late in the night making a sacrifice because of some opportunity Christ has given you, To minister His love to somebody else. It's massively inconvenient to do A, B, or C. Or it's sacrificial to give away X, Y, or Z. Remember, God is never benefited. He's the great benefactor. 
You can't outgive him. It's more blessed to give than receive because the hole you give through is the hole you get through. And he just keeps coming at a more powerful torrent than you can ever give. The man gave Jesus a meal. The woman gave Jesus her greatest possession because he was her most priceless treasure. Then Jesus gets to explaining why she gave him everything. This is verses 40 through 50. We learn in verse 40 that the Pharisee's name is Simon. And we also learn that Jesus commences to laying down a gauntlet on what embracing the gospel will do to our pocketbook. Jesus drew a direct connection between the forgiveness of our sins and the generosity of forgiven sinners. Verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. That might have been one of the greatest regrets of Simon's life. Jesus tells a two-verse story, verse 41 and 42, about a money lender and two debtors. And the story is about love. The story is about treasure. Your heart treasure, your deepest love. Verse 41, a money lender had two debtors, one of 500 denarii, the other 50 When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon got the quiz answer correct. The most forgiven possesses the most love for the forgiver. Jesus said in verse 43, you have judged correctly. You got the answer right. The greater the relief of the debt, the greater the love of the debtor. Verses 44 to 47, Jesus applies that story to the woman whose tears were falling on his feet and to Simon who was entertaining accusatory thoughts about Jesus. If he knew who this woman was, Jesus drove his point home with what has been called the treasure principle. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. The costly vial of perfume was quickly broken and poured over the feet of Jesus. Though she was experiencing scorn and shame from her sinful past and her scandalous reputation, all we know is that everybody knows her as in the city. The whole city knows her as a sinner. But she barges in and she falls at the feet of Jesus, eschewing the shame and breaking her treasure because... Jesus' loving kindness to her had caused her heart to love Him as her greatest treasure. Let's see how we get there. Verse 42, Jesus says in the story that the debtors are unable to repay. Verse 47, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven. That's His connection. She has a debt she can't pay, and I'm forgiving it all. What is it, according to Jesus, that unlocks our heart to treasure Christ supremely? Answer, the cross, forgiveness. The anointing of Jesus by this woman is a portrait of exactly how our forgiveness was procured. Just like this woman knew a lot about shame 
and esteemed being extremely, excessively generous, nobody has experienced more shame and nobody has given more generously for those whom He loves than Jesus. This is how forgiveness actually happens. Verse 50, He talks about saved and having peace. By faith in Jesus, we are saved and we experience peace that no worldly resources can provide. You don't need me to give you a list of all the famous and lavishly wealthy rich people in the history of the world who were among the most miserable and many of whom took their own life because nothing, nothing, nothing can satisfy except for Christ. She gave her all to Him because she knew He would give His all for her. As I was researching this alabaster vial, it became very apparent that it was in all likelihood not only expensive, but also this woman's only hope for anything close to a retirement. Maybe she could sell it when she got too old to work. And maybe those resources would provide for her means, her needs. Now my in-laws would probably rebuke me if they knew I was about to share this story. But I'm going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission when their local church was building a family life center to use as ministry in their community, which our church used two weeks ago for our teenagers to have a place to fellowship and hear the gospel from Pastor Tommy, which was phenomenal. When that was happening 40 years ago, my in-laws cashed in their retirement and gave it to the building campaign. Then they started over. He, an associate pastor, she, a school teacher, started rebuilding their retirement late in their adulthood. And I'm pleased to report to you that both of them are retired today and have been for a few years and the Lord's taking care of them. I'm not laying that down as a template. I'm trying to help you understand the value of this alabaster vial. This lady didn't know exactly how it would all look after she broke her most priceless treasure over the feet of Jesus, but she definitely knew Jesus would take care of her. She had a glimpse of the sacrifice that Jesus would make for her. Therefore, there was no such thing as too great a cost to make for Him. The, wor the worst possible time to ask Will we give to Jesus is when things are tight, right? That's the worst time to be asking that question. There's a gospel application in this. The giving decision has to be made before the trial comes. Jesus had not yet laid his life down for this woman to pay her debt for the forgiveness of her sins. Somehow she knew he would. Jesus made that decision long before the trial of the cross came. He wasn't negotiating with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he knew there was no other way for the honor of God to be upheld and the sins of sinners to be forgiven than through him being the mediator through his cross work. He wasn't negotiating with God when he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, I believe that it's a reference to that night, Garden of Gethsemane, 
That in the days of his flesh, quote, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Who did he pray to? The one able to save him from death. How did he pray? With loud crying and tears. Who did he pray to? The one able to save him from death. Was he saved from death? No. No. Did God hear his prayer? Yes. He was heard because of his godly fear. The sacrifice of Jesus was not decided in the garden. When things are tight, that's the worst time to make a decision about whether or not we're going to give. Jesus made that decision in eternity past. Long before he sweated drops of blood beneath the impending agony of the cross. In Mark's account of this woman anointing the feet of Jesus with perfume... We find these words. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For the perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. When Jesus says this woman did a good thing, he he said it because he knew she was preparing him for the gospel, the greatest gift that would ever be given. Jesus said in Mark 14 that she was anointing him for his burial when he would go pay for our debt against God. The third and final part, so the man tipped Jesus, but Jesus gave his life. The woman loved Jesus as her greatest treasure because she saw what Paul calls in Ephesians 3, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is nothing more valuable than Jesus. When he becomes your heart treasure, to quote Jesus, you love him much. And then third and finally, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8, and then some applications. Verses 1 to 3 tell us that God's ordinary strategy for the extraordinary advance of Christ's kingdom is moving the hearts of Christians to give sacrificially to his work out of our private means. When I asked earlier, what's your strategy for kingdom investment? This is where we were headed. There's at least 18 people listed in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8. Let's do the math. There's the 12 plus Jesus. That's 13. There's a minimum of three women. So now we're up to 16. And then there's others, plural. So it's a minimum of 18. There's at least 18 people in verses 1 to 3. How did those 18 people get food on their table every day? How did they get clothing on their back and lodging over their head? How were their practical needs met for the kingdom advancing causes of the earthly life and ministry of the incarnate Son of God? How did Jesus get from here to there and have food when he got there? And the entourage that was with him, verse 3 answers the question. Some ladies and, quote, many others were contributing to their support out of their private means. The needed support for Jesus' ministry sometimes came on very rare occasion from him pulling a fish out of the sea that had coins in its mouth. But most of the time, it came from, quote, contributions from the private means of the people who follow him. That's the way he still works today. 
It reminds me of how the Old Testament temple was built, the most beautiful building that's ever been erected on the face of planet Earth. The inside of the walls that nobody could see, the studs, were made from the cedars of Lebanon that had to be carried from a thousand miles away. The shipping was pretty expensive for the studs on the inside of the wall. The overlays of gold, the remarkable details of the fabric of finest quality, never a more beautiful building on the face of the planet erected. How did it happen? The same way that God is carrying out his kingdom advancing purposes today. The Old Testament tabernacle, a temple, by the way, was just a picture of the true greater temple. The Lord Jesus, the most beautiful temple that's ever been on planet Earth, is not a building. It's a person. That Old Testament temple, how was it provided for? The same way the earthly life and ministry of Jesus was provided for. Listen to these words and see if you've ever experienced them. When proceeds for the temple construction were being raised, Exodus 35.21 says, Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the Lord's work. Exodus 35.22, Then all those whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought blah, 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 blah. Verse 26, All the women whose hearts stirred, all the men and women whose heart moved them. Exodus 35, 29. Who moved their heart? God did. The Old Testament temple got built because a bunch of people were stirred in their heart to sacrificially give to the proceeds needed for its construction. So there's an application. If our hearts are never stirred to give to the Lord's gospel work, and the temple was certainly a gospel portraying work, then we should be asking some serious questions about our heart for the Lord. You'll remember when Jesus talked about the impossibility of serving both God and wealth. This is the way he said it. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, Jesus said, serve God and wealth. We've talked about it plenty of times here, but it's worth repeating. Why didn't Jesus say God in food? Why didn't Jesus say God in relationship? Why didn't Jesus say God in your you know, favorite toy? Why did he say God in money? Because they're served the exact same way. How do you serve money? Do you give money something that money doesn't have? No. It's in the center and your whole life revolves around getting more of it. That's how you serve it. You don't give it something it doesn't have. You bow to it as your deity. That's how Jesus is served. You don't give him something he doesn't have. You order your whole life around bowing to his deity. The reason you can't serve God and money at the same time is because you can't have two central focal points of the orbit of your soul. Which is exactly why 1 Timothy 6.10 is in our Bible. Money loving, not money, money loving is the root of all evil. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Why? 
because it's a greatest heart treasure issue. Remember Jesus said to this woman, he who's forgiven much loves much. It's a heart treasure issue for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Rich or poor, lost people don't have money. They're had by money. You don't have money to be a slave to it. Let me say it better, the way I mean it. You do not have to have any money to be a slave to it. You just have to order your life around it to be owned by it. Just like one who is owned by Jesus, their whole life orbits around him. So we see in verses 1 to 3 that the, the practical needs of the ministry of the Lord Jesus were met by people sacrificially contributing out of their private resources. That's God's strategy for kingdom advance. When the gospel entered Philippi in Acts chapter 16, a lot of lost people didn't like it. Why didn't they like it? Well, not only because they hated Jesus, but especially because it started affecting their bottom line. They started losing profit because Christians stopped paying for pagan practices. When the masters of a demon-possessed girl saw that their profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, quote, Acts 16, 19, and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When did they do that? When they saw their profit was gone. In Acts 19, when the gospel goes into Ephesus, folks started getting saved, and as a result, sorcery decreased. And the local merchants wanted Paul to leave because people were not buying their magic books anymore. Instead, they were putting them in a big pile somewhere near the city and burning them. When Jesus sent out the disciples in Mark chapter 6, he instructed them. Now, this is pretty interesting. There's a lot of Old Testament parallels to this when Israel was leaving Egypt. Only take a staff, a walking stick. Quote, do not take bread, do not take a bag, and do not take any money. They just sent them out for long-term, more than one night ministry. No bread, no bag, no money. We're going to be hungry and poor. How would they eat? God would provide for them through the generosity of those who believed their message. It's God's ordinary means of his extraordinary kingdom advance. The book of Ezra is an inspired expose on God providing through his people and through pagan nations for the rebuilding of the temple so that God would be worshipped as he ought. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches a passage that I feel like was written especially for me. On seeking first his kingdom and not worrying about our life, our food, our body, our clothing. Why? Because our father, our father takes care of the birds in the sky and the grass on the ground. And he's definitely going to take care of his people. Humans need money. God does not. When we give to Christ's church, when we give to his kingdom advancing work, we're not paying God back for our salvation. We're seeking to support God's ordinary means of accomplishing His extraordinary work. Supporting the proclamation of the gospel. Supporting the propagation of the gospel. 
We give to support the care of souls and the discipleship of Christians and the evangelization of our communities and getting the gospel to the far-reaching nations. How does God, generally speaking, do that? He ordinarily does all of that by entrusting His resources to His people. Then, Exodus, He moves their hearts to give those resources for His purposes. We're the funnel. And He wants us to get the joy of being involved in His kingdom advancing work. Therefore, He entrusts the resources to us so that we too can give them as an emblem of the gospel, which is the greatest gift of all that was given for us. Here's our application. I have too many. I will cut some of them and add them, Lord willing, to next week's sermon. Number one, consider how the gospel got to you. Think about it. Very practically, how did the gospel get to you? We are two beautiful testimonies today. God saving a seven-year-old girl and a college student. How did the gospel get to you? Well, supernaturally speaking, God ordained in eternity past that you'd be born and live in a place where you had access to the most important news in the universe. There's two billion people alive today who never heard the gospel. Don't grow desensitized to the reality that you've heard the gospel probably hundreds and thousands of times. Supernaturally, God ordained it that way. Practically, God ordained for many, many others of his people to to be obedient to him, to give monetarily to their churches. Untold numbers of ordinary Christians who will never have a biography written about their life cheerfully and regularly gave to the support and ministries of their church. And that's how the gospel keeps propagating and gets to you and me. Acts chapter 4 is still happening today. Don't read that passage and tilt your head like it's weird. Read that passage and say, would you read me, Lord, instead of me read that? When the whole congregation believed they were of one heart and one soul, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was on them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Godly people in this congregation are making tremendous sacrifices for the sake of doing good, especially to the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. Our first priority, unapologetically, is not to people who are not members of the church. It's first to the flock, Ephesians 6.10, the household of God. But not only here, also there. When Paul was having his gospel validated, Is he preaching the exact same message that the 11 disciples who walked with Jesus for three and a half years were preaching? Exact same, no different? Well, they came together for a test. And after Paul explained to them the gospel that he proclaimed, they said, yep, right hand of fellowship signifying we're preaching the exact same gospel. May the Lord bless you and fabulously produce fruit through your ministry. And then they said, Right after validating the truthfulness of the gospel, the next sentence in the Bible is they said, oh, 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 one more thing. Remember the poor. Right after the gospel? Yes. Because there's a direct correlation between the forgiveness of our sins 
for sinners who knew themselves deep in debt and the giving to people who cannot do anything to pay us back. There's a direct correlation to remember, of course, what Paul says, yeah, obviously, the very thing I was eager to do. I remember a crop of new students at uh, the medical school here at UT Memphis in the fall of 2007. They were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, had been accepted to their program or the cream of the crop. Others got denied. They got approved. They were showing up in Memphis from all over the place. And somehow or another, in God's strange providence, I was invited to address them. And so there they were, ready to do all their work to earn their white coat, and I thanked them. I said two things. Number one, thank you so much for caring about something that God so deeply cares about, the well-being of the human body. Thank you. Thank you for all the labor and study and work you're going to put in. And number two, I said, I do believe that the main reason God wants many of you to come here and do all the arduous work at this medical school is so that you can connect with a local church while you're here so that you can be infused even deeper if you've already got it with God's heart for the nations and you can use your expertise, training, and skill to gain access to closed countries to take them a gospel where somebody on a missionary visa could never go, but you can get in because of your skill set and I don't think any of them ever came to grace. Two months ago, I was in Eastern Europe with Tracy and Jesse and Kelly Baker and their kids from our church. And we were trying to encourage gospel workers who are scattered in 14 to 16 countries in Eastern Europe. They'd all come together for a few days of refreshment in the Lord. While we were there, those 70-ish people representing about 30 households took up over $40,000 for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for global missions. They also took up over $6,000 for a crisis pregnancy center in Thailand that the teenagers picked as a ministry to support. And oh, by the way, on the last day, they put a blue cooler out on the table and said, if anybody wants to give a contribution for a tip for all the hotel workers... We brought Bibles in their language and we would like to give them a tip with their Bible and they filled up the bucket. What I'm saying is these people who are on a shoestring budget, you can go figure out what you know, missionary support income is like, gave over $50,000 to advance the gospel in other parts of the world and they did it with great joy while they themselves are making lifelong sacrifices to get the gospel to parts of the world. That's how it works. They're not a special breed of Christians. God just stirs the hearts of Christians to give to the work of Christ. Four months ago, I was in a little mud hut with a thatched roof in South India where Pastor Nathan was sweating a puddle on the floor as he preached. And I was sitting right beside him. And while he was preaching, a sweet young lady came and brought me some ice cold fruit punch. And uh, I joyously sipped it as Nathan kept unpacking uh, his sermon. And at the conclusion of the service, an elderly man wrinkled up looks as South Indian as you might be able to envision in your mind's eye, comes with a small baggie of grain and one egg 
and he puts it on the altar and puts the egg on top of the bag. And that was his tithe, his offering for the day. In God's sight, that grain and that egg may have been more than the person in an affluent nation giving to his or her church annually. Because the issue is not the bottom line of our tithe numbers. The treasure of our hearts that motivates why we give is the issue. When we're about appearing generous rather than being generous, we need to take a good long look at Acts chapter 5 and see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. We sometimes suppose if maybe if we had a little more, we would give a little more. But Jesus said, to the contrary, he who's faithful with a little will be faithful in much. It's a heart issue. If we're unfaithful with small, why would he entrust us with more? I don't know what the price of lumber was in Noah's day. When Genesis 6.14 rolled around and God told him to build a boat out of gopher wood and cover it on the inside and out with pitch. But I'm assuming like the receipts you get at the, uh, at the pharmacy, CVS, these things are like six feet long when you buy a candy bar and a soda I'm assuming the receipt was pretty long when Noah went down to Lowe's or Home Depot and picked up the materials for his boat building project. When Abraham buried his beloved Sarah, Ephron the Hittite insisted on giving Abraham a field and a cave to bury his bride. But the father of our faith insisted on, quote, paying the full commercial standard price. Genesis 23, 16. How much? 400 shekels of silver. Where did it come from? The money didn't fall out of the sky. And it didn't come from a fish's mouth like Jesus paying taxes. God had provided the resources he needed for the Lord honoring work at hand. We all know that money can be used even by churches for bad things. We know that Christians can use money for bad things and professing Christians often and almost always use money for bad things. And lost people certainly do. Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver was not good. But even that fulfilled Zechariah chapter 11. So when people use money against Jesus, Jesus has a way of causing it to work out for good for his people. Jesus overturned tables. Why? Because the money changers, Matthew 21, said at them, what was the fundamental problem? They were coming to church to steal from God and steal from his people instead of honoring him with all their hearts. I said I got too many applications. I'll leave you with this one. And it's super practical because I know we have a lot of tender conscience, sincere Jesus-loving members of this church who are giving faithfully. So now I'm talking to you. Let your church help you. Let your church help you. This is politically incorrect, but we, don't, we live in another kingdom. We got different policies. Let your church help you. One of the greatest deterrents to kingdom Giving is Christian debt. I know families who are intentionally trying to dig out of debt who also have never missed a tithe in the history of their marriage. Hear me clearly. It's not a godly virtue to give in a way that exacerbates your debt. But let your church help you. Let's not be superstitious. Like all the prosperity preachers who guilt people into giving more and more and more, lying to them that if you just give God more of your supply, then he'll give you more of his supply. I did say the hole you get through is the hole you 
the hole you give through is the hole you get through. What I mean is the blessedness of intimate fellowship with Jesus who gave all for you. I'm talking about spiritual blessing. I don't know if he'll give you monetary material blessing. That's not a one-to-one correlation. So instead of unilaterally deciding how you're going to dig yourself out of a financial hole that you may find yourself in, let the Lord's church help you. This is what I mean. This is my final application. At Grace Church, there's only one elder who knows what anybody gives to this church. Not me. It's Brian. And part of the reason for that, not all, is we as pastors want to try to mitigate against a temptation to shepherd people differently based on who gives what. We don't want to see anybody as a dollar sign. But Pastor Brian does know. And two times a year, beginning and middle, he'll say to the elders at our request, when we say help us shepherd the flock in light of our covenant, is anyone not giving or tipping God? And if anybody hasn't given to the church in the previous six months, I'll tell you exactly what we do. We pray for them. We pray that God would elevate their joy in Christ by being part of his kingdom advancing purposes through giving to their local church, which, by the way, is the way all the Christians in the New Testament gave. By our earthly treasure being totally yielded to the kingdom advancing work of God in Christ. An awkward and sometimes clunky talk that follows that praying is that an elder goes to said member and says, I don't know what you or anybody else gives. I'm here to ask if you guys are okay. If there's any way this church can help you, we would love to do that. We talk to them about their giving because as I said at the beginning, when we covenant together, we fundamentally covenant not to be offended when somebody tries to help us grow in those covenant commitments because we believe they're biblically shaped. So in the 16-year history of this church, that conversation has happened numerous times, at least once a year, with some people. That's okay. Every single time that conversation has happened, the recipient has thanked the pastor. So far, by God's grace, it's never been, who do you think you are? Stay out of my business. If a pattern of no giving persists then it would actually be loving to help you. I know the world doesn't think that way. But we believe that it's radically biblical to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministries and expenses of our local church because that's the way kingdom advancing purposes carried out in the life of Jesus and in the New Testament churches. So, Pastor Brian is available to any church member who would be interested and willing in asking for help. Multiple times he sat down with uh, a legal pad and a pen and talked details of household income and expenses, tried to help people thoughtfully and prayerfully work through rebudgeting or new strategies or those kinds of things because we're in this thing together. That's what church is all about, helping us live all of life, all for Christ. Next week, we'll dig into this sentence. Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, 
so that we, through His poverty, that's the cross, might become rich. Lord willing, next week, we'll dig into that. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You for being the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills, the far-off planets that our best telescopes don't even know exist, universe, uh, galaxies and whole solar systems that we haven't even discovered. They belong to You. Isaiah 40 says Jesus holds them up by the word of His power. Tells them to stay put. The same is true with our life. You sustain us. You provide for us. But you have bigger purposes. Though you're very interested in caring for your people individually. You are determined. To advance the gospel in the world. And to all generations. And we pray that we would care most about what you care about. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Breaking our alabaster vial would be a small cost in compare to the lavish gift of Christ that's been broken over our head. Gospel balm, forgiveness of sins, union with you and your people forever. So Lord, help us. Loosen our fingers on the world and tighten our fingers on Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.